you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 17 this morning, which will serve as the completing section of a five-part introduction to the topic of everyday evangelism. You see, the verses that we've been looking at recently from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 and on are all focused on equipping us as believers on how to reach the lost around us for Jesus Christ. Because that is our earthly mission as elect exiles here in this world. We are still here on planet earth. Not immediately transported into heaven because we have been given a mission from God. And that is to proclaim the Savior who has saved us. To bring the lost and be used by God as tools to bring the lost to Jesus Christ. We're on a mission, as chapter 2, verse 12 says, of bringing others to glorify God on the day of visitation. We're on a mission, as chapter 2, verse 15 says, of bringing those who are ignorant to a knowledge of the truth and those who are foolish to the wisdom of salvation. We're on a mission as a church, as chapter 3, verse 1 is going to say, of winning over even the doubters to Jesus Christ. And we are on a mission, as chapter 3, verse 15 is going to say, of giving an answer to those who ask us for a hope that is in us. Quite simply, we're on a mission. We're on the mission of Matthew 28, 19-20, which is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, but as we're going about our everyday lives. And so how are we supposed to do that? What does it look like to be to be commissioned, great commission focused each and every day. Peter teaches us in this letter primarily through relationships. Primarily through relationships. That's what we've been learning. See, the very area where we're often tempted to retreat from the gospel in the relationships we really care about, those are actually your mission field. The people that you ought to be proclaiming the gospel to most frequently So what we've been learning, everyday evangelism, everyday evangelism advances not primarily through exceptional experiences, right? Like outreach programs or door-to-door witnessing or tract distribution or evangelistic crusades or even Sunday morning worship services. If you can engage in evangelistic opportunities like that, do it. But don't forget, everyday evangelism advances primarily through relationships that God has given you. If you want the lost to come to know Christ, then that often begins by letting the lost to come to know you. Evangelism advances primarily through relationships. And therefore, most evangelism is supposed to happen, not primarily on Sunday mornings, if you think that, but on Mondays through Saturdays, throughout the work and social week as we open up our individual hearts and homes and lives to those who do not know Jesus. Evangelism advances primarily through relationships. As we sit next to them, eat next to them, work next to them, study next to them, coach soccer next to them, and just live lives next to them. This is where evangelism primarily takes place. Throughout the week, as you open up your hearts, your homes, and your lives to those who do not know Jesus. And when you do that, when you do that, not only do you often create a captive audience for the gospel when they're in your home, right? but you can provide a compelling witness for the gospel as well. 
your coworker can't walk off the line. He has to be there with you. <laughs> you can provide a compelling witness for the gospel in those moments, inviting them to see God's transforming power at work in your own lives and in the lives of other believers, and they can discover why you and the rest of your pilgrim band are so different, and his name is Jesus. So that's everyday evangelism as God defines it. And so if you as a believer want to exalt Jesus Christ above all, and if you want to be used to make disciples and worshipers of Jesus Christ in this world, then you have to have relationships. You have to have relationships in your life. And Peter's emphasis here in these passages is you must have the right type of relationships. All of us as believers have relationships in our lives. The question is, are they the right type of relationships? Are they relationships that underline the gospel that I share? Or are they relationships that undermine it? See, wrong relationships do not exalt Christ or capture the attention of those who are still apart from Him. For example, if you have a distant, argumentative, disrespectful relationship with your spouse, that is par for the course in the unsaved world. If you have a bitter critical, disrespectful relationship towards your employer that is nothing unusual to those who are lost. And if you have a grudging, complaining, disrespectful relationship towards your government, then what makes you any different from those who don't know Christ? See, if we're to exalt Jesus Christ and if we're to reach the lost, we've got to live lives that are really different. That give the unredeemed pause and think, that's strange, right? I mean, that's weird, That's really different. Why are you like that? See, the power of our evangelism is not by being just like the world. The power of our evangelism is actually by being markedly different. Markedly different. And so this is where Peter begins the discussion discussion of everyday evangelism. It begins by living a life that underlines the gospel and doesn't undermine it. And Peter's been showing us that the first ingredient to living such a captivating and gospel-affirming life is stunning submissiveness. Living a life of submission, a life that humbly recognizes and submits to those around them and over us, instantly sets us apart from the unsaved world. They're at enmity with God. They are in hostility with one another. They are creating constant friction among all of their relationships. And so when they see a person enter their lives who loves God and who submits to the people around them and who fosters peace among their relationships, well, that gets their attention really quick. And so the key to effective everyday evangelism begins with right relationships. And the key to right relationships starts with stunning submissiveness. At least that's where Peter begins. Because, and because this virtue of stunning submissiveness is so important to exalting Christ and reaching the lost, Peter takes his time exploring this subject in verses 13 through 17. And if you've been with us, we have taken our time too. In verses 13 through 14, Peter introduced the command, motive, extent, and example of submission when he said, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor's supreme or to governors is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Quite simply, if you want to adorn the proclaimed and saving gospel of Jesus Christ by doing good, 
then it starts by submitting to the authorities that God has put over us. It starts by showing stunning submissiveness. And then when we do this, this is the result, verse 15, which was the purpose of submission. We looked at that last time. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Right? This is how we fight ignorance. This is how we fight foolishness. This is how we fight corruption. And this is how we disarm opponents. It is by doing good. As elect exiles, we are to combat spiritual wickedness in the high places the way that God's people have always fought it, with the Word of God, with prayer, and with the power of a transformed life. As Christians, we don't fight against people. We fight for people. With the Word of God, we fight for people's souls, and with prayer, we call down air support. We fight the battles raging around us in the strength of the Lord and the power of His might. And when we do this, when we fight our battles in this way, by doing good, we provide a compelling testimony to the unsaved world about the sincerity of our faith and the validity of our God. Because believers who don't read the Word of God, believers who don't call upon the name of the Lord in prayer, and believers who don't exhibit the character of the Lord in their life are a joke, and unbelievers know it. That brings us this morning to verses 16 through 17, which is the principle of submission. In other words, what is the underlying reality that makes this life of stunning submissiveness that Peter has been exploring and explaining for us for several weeks not only commanded, but possible for every single believer? And the answer is freedom in Christ. That's what we're going to see this morning. Freedom in Christ. This is why every believer can, and as long as they're not being commanded to disobey God, must live a life of stunning submission to every human institution. It's because they are free. They are free. That's what we're going to see this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, which is the principle of submission. So the command, motive, extent, example, purpose, and principle of biblical submission. With that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2 for context, back in verse 11, on into verse 17. Beloved, Peter writes, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of God whose testimonies we will not swerve from even in the midst of many persecutors and adversaries. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that you have made us by your mercy and power elect exiles. Thank you, Father, that you have chosen us for salvation and that we walk in this life 
indwelt by your Spirit, empowered to perform your will, able to call on you as Father. We thank you that we are elect, and yet, Father, we acknowledge we are still exiles, though citizens of heaven. We find ourselves also at the same time citizens of earthly kingdoms. Though headed towards glory, we find ourselves here on earth. And I thank you, Father, that in your word you have given us all that we need to live a life of godliness that glorifies you. So teach us, Father, today from your word what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be set free, and how that freedom ought to be manifested in our lives on a daily basis. Help us, Father, to proclaim this freedom and help us to underline it by our lives. For your honor and for your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So after laying out for us the command, motive, extent, example, and purpose of biblical submission, Peter then concludes his introduction to Evangelism 101 by highlighting the principle of Submission in verses 16 through 17. In other words, why is stunning submissiveness not only commanded but possible for every believer, everyone who has been, and I'll give it away, born again, right? The answer is freedom. Freedom in Christ. We can, you and I can, and we must live a life of stunning submissiveness before the eyes of a watching world. Why? Because we have been set free for this very purpose. And we're going to see this principle played out in verses 16 through 17 with the freedom principle declared. That's in verse 16, followed by the freedom principle demonstrated in verse 17. So first, let's consider today, this morning, the freedom principle declared in verse 16 after peter calls us to live a life of stunning submissiveness towards the authorities god has put over us here on earth he clarifies to us what he means by saying live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of god now here we are introduced to a very very important biblical teaching the teaching of freedom in Christ. Many professing believers talk about this truth. I regret few understand it. And what I think is interesting is that most people talk about freedom in Christ when they are trying to justify morally questionable behavior. I can do this or that and it doesn't matter what anyone thinks because I've got what? Freedom in Christ. That's what that's how many people try to apply this concept. But what does the Bible say? What does freedom in Christ really mean? And what we're going to see here in verse 16 is we're going to see freedom in Christ defined for us. Freedom in Christ means that we, as those who have been born again to a living hope through Christ, freedom in Christ means that we have been set free from sin to serve. Okay? You want a definition of Christian liberty? Here it is. You've been set free from sin to serve. That's Christian liberty. So let's see this play out. Peter encourages us towards stunning submissiveness by reminding us this morning, first, that we've been set free. Beginning of verse 16, Peter begins by saying, live as people who are free. 
And he's talking to free men at this point. He's talking to nobles. He's, you know, maybe he's addressing the emperor if it ever gets around to him. He's addressing slaves. And he's saying, live as people who are free. Live as people who are free. One of the most glorious realities of our new identity in Christ is that we, through Christ, are free. We are liberated. We are redeemed. We are unbound. We are a people who have been set free from our shackles. Peter's already established this truth back in chapter 1, verse 18, if you recall, when he tells us that you were ransomed, that is, you were redeemed, you were set free free by the payment of a price. What price? With the precious blood of Christ. Christ died to set you who belong to him free. Jesus states this directly in Mark 10 verse 45 when he says, for even the Son of Man came. Why? To give his life as a ransom for many. He came to set us free. And again, John 8.36 says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. There is freedom in Christ. And this freedom that's found in Christ is so glorious that all of us who have ever been redeemed are going to sing about it for all eternity in heaven as Revelation 5 verse 9 records, and they, that is all the angels and all the saints, sang a new song to Jesus saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed, you set free a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. I mean, worshiping the God who has set us free is going to be the hymn that you're going to sing for all eternity. And so this is a very important doctrine, a very important reality for us to grasp. We'll never get over our freedom in Christ. If you are this morning someone who has been born again, someone who is trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, beloved, this morning you are a freeman. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So take heart, beloved. I can't help but think of who Peter would have been talking to at this moment. As elect exiles, our pilgrimage through this life is not always going to be easy. He's literally talking to people who are walking down paths, leaving their homes behind. There's going to be times when we will feel burdened by various circumstances. There will be times when we will feel pressured and we will feel hemmed in on every side. There are going to be times on earth when we will even possibly be imprisoned as followers of Christ. But never forget, if you are in Christ, you're always free. Free in the most vital of ways. Christ has set you free. You say, okay, free from what? Well, Peter tells us next, he tells us that in Christ we've been set free from sin. We've been set free from sin. Live as people who are free, he says, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. In other words, this is how free people live, right? They live free from the dominating power of sin because they've been set free from the dominating power of sin. See, those who don't know Christ, this is the reality we need to remember, they are enslaved to trespasses and sins. They're enslaved to it. They're dominated by it. That was the central truth of this morning's scripture reading, if you noticed it, in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. Jesus told his Jewish audience, if you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other words, Jesus is indirectly telling his listeners, you're enslaved, and you need to be set free. Well, in verse 33, they answer him, we are offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. 
How is it that you say we will become, you will become free? In other words, those Jewish people were right where most people are spiritually in their understanding. Free, what do you mean? Become free. I'm already free. I'm not enslaved to anyone or anything. I just wake up every day and break all of the Ten Commandments without a problem. But I'm not enslaved. See, that's what they don't recognize. You don't have to try hard to lie, do you? You don't have to try hard to lust, do you? You don't have to try hard to covet, do you? You don't have to try hard to be rebellious to the authorities that God has given in your life, do you? You don't have to try hard to stay home on Sunday rather than worship the Lord, right? You don't have to try hard to do anything. Why? Because apart from Christ, you are what? Enslaved in bondage. You think you've got freedom of choice? Well, what do you say to the fact that every time you're choosing sin... Look at what Scripture says. Examine your heart and your soul in light of Scripture. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus says this in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, in other words, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, is a slave to sin. As Peter repeats over in Romans six seventeen, Do you not know that you are slaves of the one to whom you obey? either of sin which leads to death or of obedience to God which leads to righteousness. Even our author Peter himself says over in 2 Peter 2 verse 19, for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. And, and that's all of us, by the way, before coming to Christ. Every single one of us. See, until the sovereign grace of God enlivens us to put our faith in Jesus Christ and to be set free, this is the natural state of every man, woman, and child enslaved to sin, dominated by sin, dead in sin, in bondage to sin, and in desperate, desperate need to be set free. And that's why Jesus came. That's why He came. Matthew one twenty one. it was declared at His birth, He came to save His people from their sins. And that's why Titus 2 verse 14 says that Jesus Christ gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us, to set us free from all lawlessness. And as Hebrews 9 verse 15 repeats, a death has occurred that redeems those who are called from their transgressions. So this is the glorious truth that is at the very center of the whole concept of Christian liberty. Christ came to earth and he died in the place of sinners on the cross in order to take away not only the penalty of his people's sins, but also to take away the dominating power of it also. Take heart, believer. If you are struggling with sin in your heart and mind and life, if you have trusted in Christ, take hold of this fact. You are indeed dead unto sin and alive unto God for righteousness. He's broken that power. It's broken that power. Christ died to set us free, free from sin. He died to break the dominating, controlling power of sin from off of our back. And so if we are His, then we are free indeed. Set free from the penalty of sin. We're being set free from the power of sin until we are finally set free from the presence of sin when we enter into glory forever. And Peter's saying, if you're free, believer, live like it. Live like it. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom in Christ as a cover-up for evil. Or as Galatians 5.13 puts it, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And how many times have you heard people, or even in your own mind, justify this, I can ask for forgiveness later. 
Many people attempt to do this. They try to use the idea of freedom in Christ as a mask to justify, to make acceptable what God calls sin and wickedness in their lives. People take this idea of freedom from sin and they warp it into a twisted idea of freedom to sin. So you'll hear things like, well, I can live in drunkenness, right? I can live in adultery. I can live in homosexuality. I can live in bitterness and greed and envy and malice day in and day out. And in the context of what we're looking at here, I can live in rebellion and insubordination against those that God has put over me. Ultimately, I can live in disregard of God's word if I want to. And it doesn't matter at all because I'm free. I'm in Christ and I'm under grace. And Peter shows us here, those are not the words of someone who is free from sin. Those are words of someone who's still in bondage to sin. In fact, those are the words of false teachers and those who are still entirely enslaved to Satan. As Jude 4 warns us, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who do this, listen to this, who pervert, who twist the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they take something that they don't even possess, this idea of freedom in Christ, and they twist it to mean spiritual license. You can live as if you don't have a Master and Lord. Peter tells us later in 2 Peter 2.19 that these people promise their listeners freedom, but they themselves are still slaves of corruption. So Peter's saying here, don't listen to that lie in your own life. Don't think of your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as people who are free. I just got one question for you. What sin, believer, have you not been serious in casting off because you've been excusing it by your freedom in Christ. See, it is actually the fact that you are in Christ that should be making you fight that sin more tenaciously than anyone else on planet Earth. Because you've been set free from it, you should fight it. Don't listen to the lie that your freedom in Christ can be used as a cover-up for evil. Live as people who are free. Well, how do free people live? How do those who truly, who are truly free live in a positive light? Well, end of verse 16, they live as servants of God. This is the last of the freedom principle declared. If you've been born again by God's mercy and power, then that means that you've been set free from sin to serve and to serve God. You've been set free from, uh, from sin to serve. That's at the end of verse 16. Peter says, Live as people who are free, living as servants of God. Everyone who has been set free in Christ Jesus from sin has also been set free in Christ to serve God. In other words, you did not trust in Jesus Christ to be able to live the life that you want to live. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins. He set you free so that you could give the rest of your life serving the one who loved you. As Paul writes in Romans 6, 17-18, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And then in, in verse 19, of course, uh, Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because belonging to God is nothing like forced servitude. Right? But the point is, you as a believer have been set free to finally be able, finally be able to obey God. And so live like it. You were once in bondage to sin and its corruption, and that's what you chose each and every day. 
You were once enslaved to a divisive, dissentious spirit, enslaved to a spirit that despised, disregarded, and disobeyed authority, but now you've been redeemed. Now you've been set free. Now you've been given the ability, as the psalmist says, to run in the way of God's commandments. So let's run. Let's live as servants of God. Let's live in stunning submissiveness to God's authority and the authorities that He has put over us. Because we're free, right? And we're free not to do what's wrong. We are free at last to be able to do what is right. To do the will of God, as he said in verse 15. This is the principle behind submission. This is why Peter says, I can give you this from Scripture, and I know you can do it. Because there's a principle, freedom in Christ. We've been set free from sin to serve God. That's the freedom principle declared in verse 16. Now let's see the freedom principle demonstrated in verse 17. Peter has just said that we are to live like people who are free, who are servants of God. So how do free people live? How do people who are serving God live? How do they act? In what ways do we serve others in submission to God? Well, Peter gives us four ways that we must demonstrate the fact that we are servants of God. Four ways that we demonstrate the principle of freedom in Christ in our relationships around us. Peter says, first... Honor everyone. That's the first way that you show someone that you are actually spiritually set free from sin. That's one of the first ways that you can show someone that you are actually a servant of God, committed to honoring Him in everything you do. You show that by honoring everyone. Wow. I could just park on this for a whole sermon, I think, today. We live in a culture geared towards not showing proper respect to anyone aren't we? That's the culture we're living in. Do you want me to give specific examples? We literally think the only way I will be heard today is if I'm as disrespectful as possible. And so if I want my values heard, I will be disrespectful to other people in order for it to be heard. This is how I will act. This is who I will vote for. We live in a culture geared towards not showing proper respect to hardly anyone. As long as you agree with me, I'll respect you. Our mantra is, correct me if I'm wrong, if you want respect, earn it. That's that's how we think. Because if you don't deserve respect, you're not going to get it. Listen, that is the opposite of what God says here, and that is the opposite of how Christ lived. We are to show honor and respect to everyone. Rich or poor, dark or light, smart or slow, moral or immoral, born or unborn, young or old, as servants of God, as people set free from the shackles of sin. One of the ways we demonstrate that is by showing honor and respect and is treating as valuable absolutely everybody. There is no room in biblical Christianity for any ideas of racial superiority or classism or elitism or anti-Semitism or caste systems or any philosophy or worldview that looks down in any way on others. God commands us as those who are free to honor and respect absolutely everyone. I mean, even the person that cut me off on the way to church? Yeah, even that person. 
Even the person who's holding up the line in the supermarket? Yep, even that person. Even the fast food employee that got my order wrong? Yep, even that person. Even the person that is constantly wearing a rainbow pin? Or maybe constantly wearing a red hat every time I see them? Uh, Yep, even that person. No matter one's age, race, income, looks, abilities, or opinions, every human being, every human being is worthy of and should be given our sincerest honor and respect. Not because they're in one category or another, but simply because they're made in the image of God. No matter how twisted the presence of sin may have marred it. They are image bearers of God and they are worthy of our honor. Now, I should clarify, contrary to popular thought, respect does not mean agreement. We don't have to agree with all men. That's not what this verse is saying. In fact, many times we must fervently disagree with men and voice that disagreement for the sake of their very own souls. But even in moments like that, we must honor everyone, value everyone, and respect everyone, even in the communication of the truth. Not because of their actions or their viewpoints or their positions in society, but simply because of their person. They are a human being carefully created by God in his own exalted and royal image. Therefore, honor everyone. The erratic driver that's contributing to the traffic jam in front of you. The inexperienced employee taking your customer service complaint. The ignorant social justice warrior arrogantly maligning biblical truths. You are to honor and respect all of them, even in your communication of truth and in your disagreements. This is how we do good. This is how we exalt Christ. This is how we stand apart as people who are free and begin to underline the gospel and start to disarm the unsaved world for the message of Christ. It is by honoring everyone. Is there someone in your life that you have not been showing honor towards in your work, in your home, kids towards your parents, parents towards your kids, husbands towards the wife, wife towards the husband? Is there someone that you have not been showing honor and respect towards in your government? Honor everyone. This is how we do good. Honor everyone. This is how we do the will of God. Honor everyone. Second, love the brotherhood. Peter's already mentioned this back in verse 22 of the previous chapter when he said, having purified your souls for a sincere brotherly love by your obedience to the truth, love one another earnestly out of a sincere and pure heart. Here, Peter returns to that vital commandment by saying, show agape love. Show unconditional, sanctified devotion to others among the body of Christ. And this is right in line, by the way, with Peter's emphasis on evangelism. He's not jumping off track here. He's staying on track. Because Jesus himself said in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When you prioritize the body of Christ and in showing love towards your fellow members in here in Grace Chapel, you show the world that Jesus exists and you show the love of Christ to them. It's what sets us apart. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but those who don't know Christ do not love the brotherhood of believers. You may have been saved for so long you've forgotten this, but 
unbelievers, they might be friendly and cordial and show deference to genuine Christians and to the assembly of the saints, but they do not love them. The unredeemed can't wait to get out of church, not get in it. (laughs) They can't wait to get out of spiritual conversations with others, not to get into them. They can't wait to avoid fellowship and commitment to a faithful church, not devote themselves to it. And then we come along into their life, right? And, And we live lives that say, I can't wait to go to church this week. Can I tell you what I read in the Bible this week that really encouraged me? Man, I can't wait to see so-and-so and talk to them about this verse. I can't wait to be more involved in serving others here. And I want to do more for the people of God around me than I'm currently doing. And they look at you and like, what planet are you from? That type of love and affection, devotion and commitment really gets people's attention. Why? Because it's different, it's odd, it's called freedom. It's called being a servant of God. It's called being born again. It's called genuine Christianity. Love the brotherhood. This is how we do good. This is how we exalt Christ. This is how we stand apart as people who are free, begin to underline the gospel, and start to disarm the unsaved world for the message of Christ. We honor everyone. Honor everyone. We love the brotherhood. We make the fellowship of grace a priority. Third, we fear God. You want to capture people's attention? Have a reverential awe, respect, and fear of God in your life. Just like Peter said in verse 17 of the previous chapter, if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. See, when the world is going around mocking God and mocking his truth, mocking his people, mocking biblical morality, and all of a sudden you come along, you respect God, you fear and tremble at his word, You are diligent to obey His commandments. When you fear God in that way and you have reverence and honor towards Him, when the world sees you as sometimes someone who's struck with dread over God's chastening and discipline in their lives and at other times is struck with awe and wonder over God's revelation of Himself in their lives, when the world sees someone who views God as overwhelmingly awesome and holy during times of personal sin and personal fellowship, That type of reverent behavior catches people's attention and it lets them know there's something really different about that person. They really know God as Father and they they reverently fear Him. This is how we do good. This is how we exalt Christ. This is how we stand apart as people who are free. This is how we begin to underline the gospel and start to disarm the unsaved world for the message of Christ. We honor everyone. We love the brotherhood. We fear God. And finally, we honor the emperor. He had to put that in. (laughs) And that brings us right back to where we started in verse 13. Right back to verse 13. Honor the emperor. Show respect, subjection, and submission when able to whatever authorities God and his wise providence has put over you. And I'm struck by how fearing God and honoring the emperor are put back to back here because they really do go together. One leads to the other. If you truly fear God, then you will honor your authorities. You will show them respect even if you have to disagree with them, even if you have to disobey. You will still honor your authorities out of reverence for God. I was reminded of, the, of that fact this past week when I came across Proverbs 24, 21-22, which reads this way. My son, fear the Lord and the King, and do not join with those who do otherwise. 
In other words, don't join with or associate with those who disrespect or disdain their authorities, even their governmental authorities. Why? Verse 22. For disaster will arise suddenly from them. And listen to this. Who knows the ruin that will come from them both? Both meaning God and the king. What a warning. Honor the king. Show him reverence and respect, or else you will be bound likely for trouble, not only with the king, but with God himself. So honor your governing authorities. When the world sees us living lives of respect, prayer, and genuine spiritual concern for those in authority, whether moral or immoral, faithful or corrupt, when they see us speaking respectfully about even those we fervently disagree with, that grabs the world's attention and it shows them that we really do believe that God is real and that he is in control. So this is how we do good. This is how we exalt Christ. This is how we stand apart as people who are free begin to underline the gospel and start to disarm the unsaved world for the message of Christ. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. There's a lot more about those four phrases that I'll say next week. But for now, this is the freedom principle demonstrated. This is evangelism 101. We've seen two points. Be subject. Serve God. Honor everyone. See, if we're to exalt Christ and we're to reach the lost, we've got to live lives that are different. That make the unredeemed pause and think, wow, that's strange. That's really different. Why are you like that? And the only way that we'll do that is if we live as those who are free, free from sin and free to serve. I just want to ask you what right now, as the Holy Spirit's been working in your heart through the proclamation of the word, what area of your heart and life needs to change? In what way have you been making an excuse for sin rather than serving God as someone who is free? In what area of your life have you been allowing ungodly, unbiblical attitudes to creep into your own heart and mind towards those around you, perhaps those that God has put over you? What message are you communicating by your life? Freedom from sin or freedom to sin? As a poet once wrote, you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and by the words that you say. Men observe what you write, whether faithless or true. So what is the gospel according to you? May God give us grace this week to underline the gospel of freedom from sin to serve God to those who are lost. Honor everyone Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is how we exalt Christ. This is how we do good. This is how we stand apart as those who are free, underline the gospel, and start to disarm the unsaved world for the message of Christ. This is Evangelism 101, and it begins right here. May God help us this week to live such lives for the glory of Christ. This is the word of God from 1 Peter 2, 13-17, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience in the fervent care of one another until the one who has set us free returns. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word today. I thank you that it is a 
double-edged sword. And it cuts us open, pierces our heart, dives down to the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Father, I thank You that Your Word cuts, and I thank You that when it cuts, it shows us how to heal. And so, Father, I pray that You would help us this week to not make an excuse for sin in our lives in any area of our life, but we would commit ourselves to serving You and doing whatever it takes Father, help us to demonstrate towards those around us a gospel of freedom found in Christ. And Father, help us to demonstrate that. Not only declare it, but demonstrate that. By how we live and how we treat those around us. Give us grace, Father, to honor everyone. For the Lord's sake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.